Blessed he is he who trusts the Lord. That blessing is spoken of in the psalm that we consider together this evening under the heading again, the psalm's secret of happiness. We turn to Psalm 2, where we read of a different kind of blessedness or happiness to complement what we learned last week. Give ear now to the word of the Lord from Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision, that he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you rulers of the earth. You be judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, once again, we seek to have that faith and trust that we spoke about this morning in our Lord Jesus Christ to grow and to increase. We long to live henceforth in that, sh- in that certain and secure trust in him, his good purposes, his power, and his promises for us. We pray that we too, being faithful ambassadors, would uh, have this uh, winsome and effective call to all nations to be happy, to be blessed, and to put their trust in the Son, whom we know, even our Lord Jesus. In him we pray. Amen. Well, sometimes people want to know, what is Christianity all about? Could you answer that question? Uh, Somebody asked you to explain what your religion is all about. How would you respond? I suppose we could start by explaining something like the Apostles' Creed. Well, we believe in a God, Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and so forth. And that's a very good start. Uh, We believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, and so forth. That's good. Well, we could finish the creed, and have we covered the waterfront? Well, that that does seem to leave something out, doesn't it? Um, Even if you explained everything that, that we know and believe as Christians, there's more to being a follower than filling our head, right? James chapter 2, who else believes everything that you believe? Who, I'm sorry, who, 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 yeah, in that sense, um, even who believes and trembles? Even the demons believe. You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. Uh, what, what makes us different from demons? The point that James is making is that faith means different things. And uh, even that uh, uh, the so-called faith by which one might claim without works, nevertheless, is, is dead. Being a Christian, of course, does not only have to do with what we believe. It has everything to do with how we live and what we do. 
And even if we described all of that, uh, the great commandments of loving God and our neighbor and how that filters down through the Big Ten and how there's various things in life that we do to maintain that, uh, prayer, the Lord's Supper, all these things, well, we've still not finished the whole story, right? There's something missing, something that makes all the difference in your Christian life. And do you know what I'm talking about? We've, we've considered the, the mind, we've considered... Um, the, the deeds, the life, what we do, what else could there be? What else could there be? I'm talking, of course, about the heart, about our affections, especially about what we love and treasure, where we find our joy and our happiness. True religion very, very much concerns the heart. And oftentimes when there is something not right in our Christian life and you can't quite put your finger on it, it's the heart of the matter that's not right, the matter of the heart. And, and, and frankly, it's not typically the objectives of the Christian life where we find difficulty or where we stumble. Even more difficult things, Trinity, the creation, the fall of man, Christ's atonement, the last judgment. These aren't the main source of our problems, difficult doctrines, as they might prove to explain or to even believe. But our problems come on the subjective side. That is to say, the main issue that we deal with is our feelings, our convictions, our inner states. And Christianity would be so much simpler if it were only a religion out there and not just as true a religion in here. If our internal convictions and our experiences of life always corresponded to our beliefs and doctrines and even actions. Faith is a heartfelt conviction, of course, that Christ is not only able to save, but himself dear, beloved, more to be desired than all the world. And uh, Peter writes, therefore, in his first letter, though you haven't seen him, you love him. And even though you don't see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Ah, that's what we need. An inexpressible and a glorious joy. And that is what the book of Psalms promises us right from the very first word. That is what the book of Psalms promises us right from its introduction. By way of review, and I won't be able to give you all the details today, but the first two Psalms in the Psalter are set specifically at the beginning in order to introduce the whole book to us. And there's many things that tie these two psalms together. The first word in the book is the word blessed in my translation, which, as I explained last week, is just the ordinary word for happy. And it's translated that way in many translations, the NRSV and many other Bibles uh, to review. This is not the ordinary word to bless or be, be blessed, which is Barak, uh, this is the ordinary word for happiness. The theological word book of the Old Testament has a very short entry for this word, ashar, or its uh, construct form here for you Hebrew students, ashray. Um, happiness or blessedness. Um, well, if it is happiness, then why do many translations say blessedness? Well, since this word in context here and elsewhere describes not just an emotion but a divinely happy state, not something effervescent that could come and go, many translators have decided that blessed is perhaps 
clearer. But it's exactly the same word as is found throughout the Bible, Deuteronomy 33. Happy are you, O Israel, the word to Solomon. Happy are your men. Happy are those servants that stand continually before you. Job 5, happy is the man whom God corrects, and, and so forth. My point is this, not to cause you to give, not to give you any doubt on your translation, which is uh, very fairly and finely done, whether it's happy or blessed, as long as we understand it's a state, not just merely an emotion. But my point is this. It's very, very striking that of all the words that could begin this book of Psalms, the word that is given is the word happy. The whole world is searching for what this book promises. It's searching for happiness. And the great tragedy of human life is that it's seeking for happiness in the ways that are destined to bring them misery so often. The happiness that we read in this book is as I explained last time, something deeper, something much more fundamental than what the world can offer, a blessed happiness, a happy blessedness. It's an indestructible joy, deep in the soul, safe from every t- sorrow and trial of life. We still have to struggle and strive. We may have to shed bitter tears for all that's happened in the world. Our Savior did as well. And yet there was the joy that was set before him, and we likewise are happy as his people in such a way, in such a world, that the world can neither give nor take away a happiness that is permanently ours, despite how we might feel at the moment, a happiness that transforms our outlook on life, a fixed point deep in the soul, impervious to sorrows. You remember when Paul and Silas were thrown into the jail at Philippi and beaten and put into stocks? And what were they doing at midnight? They were singing because the Lord was with them. And Peter and John are beaten because they preached in the name of Jesus. And they left rejoicing, for they had been counted worthy to suffer disgrace for the name. Or years later, Peter wrote, Beloved, don't think it strange concerning the fiery trial that is going to, which is to try you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice to the extent you partake of Christ's sufferings. That is to say, even the worst things about Christ in this book, even the the things that we must suffer for him are better than uh, the, the riches and treasures of Egypt. The, the best things that the world could offer, we would not trade. Robert Layton, therefore, writes that Christianity does not banish the delights and pleasures of sin, but rather exchanges them for joy that unspeakably surpasses them. And it calls men indeed, to pure delights. It calls to men, drink no more from the puddle. Here are the crystal streams of a living fountain. So, as I gave you an extended introduction last time, we we have a desire for happiness because that's what we're made for. We all want to be happy. Everything that we choose to do is because we think that ultimately this is going to bring us happiness. And the book of Psalms, when we open it up, we find it has the secret of happiness, except that it makes no attempt to conceal itself. So perhaps we could better call this series The Open Book of Happiness. I'm sorry, The Open Secret of Happiness. The book of Psalms, The Open Secret of Happiness. To find that happiness... We began with Psalm 1. Happy or blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. We learned last time this psalm describes the happiness of the man who has his delight, delight in the law of the Lord. Uh, Psalm 2, following hard on, goes on to describe the happiness, same word, of the man 
who trusts in God's Son. A delight in the law of the Lord, a, a happiness from trusting in God's Son. And these, uh, th- these are some of the many things that tie these psalms together. Happiness is what begins the first psalm and ends the second psalm and brackets the introduction to the book. These two psalms, in fact, were often regarded as one psalm by the Jews, and um, that's uh, another story here. In, in Psalm 1, God's law is central. In Psalm 2, God's son is central. Uh, they go together. There is the individual, there are the nations of the world, and these various perspectives on happiness. Uh, the law goes with the law of God and the Son of God go, go together. And this is right because the law, without God's Son, only condemns us. The law, for its part, is, is good, holy, righteous, and good. But without Christ, it only has the power to humble, condemn, and judge us. But with Jesus Christ, our King, Psalm 2, as we are in Christ, then we can delight in God's law after the inner man, as Paul puts it, and then Christ can bring this law to be a rule of our life. So the Psalter loses no time in personally introducing us to the central figure of this book, our King, who it calls here the Son of God, and also in Hebrew, the Messiah, the Greek translation, as we just read in the book of Acts, the Christ, the word that simply means the Anointed One. The law, Psalm 1, is not enough to bring us the happiness that we need through Christ, Psalm 2. Only through trusting Christ will true happiness be ours. Psalm 2 introduces us to the king and also his kingdom and its future among the nations. It speaks very clearly of God giving his son the universal rule over all the earth and its peoples. God's throne is in heaven, verse 4, and yet he will rule the earth through his appointed king, reminding us of Ephesians, how God has seated his son on that throne far above all power and authority, putting all things under his feet and appointing him as head over the church. So like so many of David's psalms, um, there are some things here that can apply to David himself or his sons, but again, it's also clear that the vision here is far too great to have been fulfilled by anyone except David's greater son, our Lord Jesus. Or as Dr. Walkie, one of my teachers, put it, I think, very beautifully, what we find in the Psalms is a wardrobe of purple robes waiting for one worthy to wear them. Uh, Jesus steps into Psalm 2, and all confusion is resolved. We have been looking for a far greater anointing, a far, far greater kingdom, a far, far greater fulfillment. And now it is found in Jesus. And there is little surprise, therefore, that this is the second most quoted psalm in the New Testament. And in every case, refers to the King of Kings, our enthroned Lord Jesus Christ at God's right hand. Psalm 2 shows us the way of happiness or blessedness in Him. And if you're not a Christian, this psalm warns you that you are on the shakiest ground imaginable if You will not flee to him for safety. If you are a Christian, it gives you a very great encouragement that despite all all the raging of all the nations and their mighty kings, our God still reigns, and the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. 
he shall reign forever. That will be a great encouragement. So uh, this psalm is composed as a kind of dramatic presentation of four scenes or four acts in Act 1. The first three verses, the rebellious kings and rulers speak to each other about, let's break free from the rule of God and his Christ. In Act 2, verses 4 through 6, God calmly sits on the throne surveying this scene and laughs and speaks his word. Uh, Act 3, the son then speaks to his father. It's the son speaking in verses 7 through 9, revealing God's decree for him to inherit all nations. And then in Act, in Act 4, the final three verses, the psalmist speaks once more, or perhaps even puts words in our mouth that we might make an ap- appeal through them to the rulers of the earth. In light of all this, now therefore be wise, O kings, be instructed, you judges. And so we're going to look at this psalm briefly in four parts, man's vain rebellion, God's sovereign decree, Christ's universal reign, and our urgent plea. Four points, three verses apiece. First, man's vain rebellion. The psalm begins with the question, why do the nations rage? I mean, that they rage, is, there's no question about that. But what are they thinking? Why are they raging? Do people think that they are going to continue to rage, successfully rebelling against God and his Christ? Why do they rage and plot in vain? Rebelling against your maker is like throwing a snowball to try to put out the sun. My friends, if you are rebelling against God today, you are behaving with less sanity than that. The rebels say, let's break their bonds in pieces and cast their cords from us. And this is the reason why people vainly rebel. Because to them, they can only see God and his Christ as people that bring unhappiness. That that, that they bring strictness and narrowness. uh, A law that keeps them in a kind of miserable bondage. Hence, bonds and cords. Um... Sin takes God's invitation to happiness and blessing and twists it around to make it sound to people like an invitation only to bondage and misery. That's the deceitfulness of sin. Here's a psalm that's inviting you to eternal happiness. And here are people and nations and rulers raging against this same Son of God wanting to get rid of his bands and cords. Jesus says, Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. These are his pleas, to come and find joy and peace and rest. But the deceitfulness of sin is so strong that all people can hear Sounds like chains and cords. Sin is the great corrupter of our minds. It makes us both hate and distrust God from the very beginning, Genesis 3. So, when you're talking to people, you have to remember, when you're trying to lead them to eternal happiness, don't just take them to the law, Psalm 1. Take them to the Son, Psalm 2. Here we find... um, the nations of the earth in view, as well as their kings and their rulers, the national rebellion 
against the reign of God in Christ is in view. And so just as Psalm 1 spoke about the fate of rebellious individuals, Psalm 2 speaks specifically here about the fate of rebellious nations and their rulers who will not submit to God in Christ. Kings and rulers are united for their part. We're not going to have this man to rule over us. The, the human kings, as it were, want their own absolute power. We will decide. Or in democratic countries like ours, well, the people will decide everything. We will tolerate no higher rule, no standard or right and wrong than we the people. Vox populi, vox dei. Man is the measure. Let us break their bonds in pieces. Let us cast away their cords. That's a nation doomed to be broken. And so in the first section, we see the great problem, the problem of all the nations and all the kings who view this, this invitation to happy blessedness as only uh, bonds and chains. And therefore, they rebel, a vain rebellion. Our first point today, man's vain rebellion. Second, we have God's sovereign decree. So what's God's response to all these plots? Is he alarmed? Is he concerned a bit? Is he anxious? <laughs> he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. God is totally unperturbed by the raging of the nations and the vain conspiracy they're devising. He has enthroned his own king. He doesn't fear their wicked foolishness. And if our God is so unmoved, then we also should be also the most calm and confident people in the world because our God reigns. All the authority in heaven and earth has been given to our brother, Jesus Christ. All of our lives are governed by the one who's working out all things according to his purpose. We have never been at the mercy of unforeseen circumstances. We are held in the sovereign, indeed predestined decree of our God, who is our Father in Christ, and the Lord is our helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. And those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. And all things must therefore serve that great purpose. God laughs. What can man do that my Father in heaven has not allowed him to do in purpose to work for my good and for his glory in the earth? And so when the disciples bore testimony to Christ and they were threatened, you must keep silent. They met for prayer, and where did they turn? But Psalm 2, the most appropriate psalm. Why are they raging? Why did they plot such vain things? Taking their stand, gathering together against the Lord and his Christ. For, it says, uh, against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, Messiah word, Christ, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were all gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. All those people, in all their raging conspiracy, could only do what God's hand and God's purpose had previously determined, serving His will and our salvation. So rather than fretting in fear, the disciples pray this psalm and then say, Lord, just give us boldness, boldness to speak and wonders to conform, confirm the testimony of Jesus to these people. And of all the truths you see, 
God's sovereignty, even providence and predestination and so forth, these are things that are not for academics and scholars. They are to assure us and give us confidence. Our times are in his hand. The Lord will do what he likes in heaven above and below in the, in the earth below. None can stay his hand or say to him, what has he done? The earth can rage. The rulers can do all the conspiracy they like. Let them threaten. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. God, for his part, laughs and holds them in derision. Fools. He speaks to them in his wrath and distresses them in his deep displeasure. I have set my king to reign on my holy hill of Zion, says the Lord. His response to such a rebellious, vain world is to place all authority in heaven and earth in the hands of his Christ, whose reign he will maintain. And this terrifies them, or it says distresses them. Well, we, uh, uh, God has appointed him king in Zion, and there God will maintain him. He must reign till he has put all his enemies under his feet, we read elsewhere. And so we find, in the second point, God's sovereign decree appointing an, uh, his son. Now, after hearing the nations speak for their part, let's cast off his cords, we've heard God speak. I've set my king on my holy hill of Zion. Now in the third point, in more familiar territory, I think, Christ himself speaks and declares his universal reign, Christ's universal reign. Verse 7, the the Lord Jesus speaking. I wish we had red-letter Bibles that were proper red-letter Bibles because this is the, the words of the Son here. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me. You are my son, today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your, your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Uh, this then, the, the uh, Son of God rehearsing the decree of the Lord as what the Lord confirmed to him. So first you say, what does it mean today I've begotten you? Is that talking about Bethlehem? Uh, you, you would think so, but actually, no, uh, it's a little more confusing than that. Uh, he's speaking about Christ when he's raised and takes his throne at the right hand of God the Father. I won't have you have time to trace out the references, but this enthronement of God's king is referred in various places to God setting him as his firstborn. That is the heir and the ruler of all. This has happened. All authority in heaven and earth is now his. He has taken his throne above. He reigns. Um, and uh, this part of the psalm also tells you why you're a Christian. Why are you a Christian? You say, well, I believe in Jesus. Well, fair enough, but there's a more profound reason given here, because the Father has given His Son the very nations as His inheritance, the ends of the earth as His possession. Uh, This is why we find uh, here in the ends of the earth, here in the New River Valley, that the King of kings and the Lord of lords rules here over us and among us. He has made, Revelation chapter 1, the ruler over the kings of the earth. Now, this is a flesh and blood man on the throne of the whole world, ruling over all nations, our brother. And Christ is commissioned to rule them with a rod of iron. Uh, and specifically here to dash them to pieces as a potter's vessel that they will not be able to fulfill their raging plots. 
Nations and rulers will not be able to stop the worldwide growth of Christ's kingdom. He will possess all nations. As we see in the New Testament, all those who actually try to stand against it come to nothing, that the rulers of the Jews are only, in all their raging, just advancing the church. I mean, they, you know, they persecute them out of Jerusalem, and it just spreads to more places. They, they throw them in prison. They, they convert the jailer. Uh, Herod, um, all that they are doing is simply spreading Christ's kingdom here, there, and everywhere, while they themselves often perish in misery. In fact, um, not just Herod, who died such a miserable death, um, in his notes on Psalm 2, Charles Spurgeon points out that uh, there are two monuments in Spain to the Roman emperor Diocletian. One of the monuments says, Diocletian, Jovian, Max, Maximian, Hercules, Caesarius, Augusti, Caesar Augustus, for having extended the Roman Empire in the east and west and having extinguished the name of Christians who brought the Republic to ruin. <laughs> um, I think it was, uh, what's, uh, no, no more than 10 years uh, later, uh, Constantine is converted, just so you know. Uh, another uh, another uh, um, uh, statue uh, monument says uh, to him, uh, for having everywhere abolished the superstition of Christ and for having extended the worship of the gods, they were imagining a vain thing. Caesars are long gone. Um, and what became of the, of, of the Caesars that tried to extinguish them? Well, Spurgeon goes on to say that of the 30 Roman emperors and governors of provinces who were known for their zeal and bitterness in persecuting Christians, one went mad, one went blind, one was slain by his own son, one drowned, one strangled, one died, I quote, in a manner that will not bear recital, Two committed suicide, five were assassinated, eight were struck down by enemies in battle after being taken prisoner, uh, and so on. Um, these men could not extinguish the light of Christ. Their vain plots were useless and came to nothing. They themselves broken with a rod of iron and perished in the way, as the psalm says. And so now what is our response to be is the next question. This is where the psalm concludes. The rebellious nations have spoken. The Father has given his response. Christ revealed the decree. And now, finally, in the fourth and final section, it is we who speak. We, Christ's ambassadors, we plead for the nations and their rulers, therefore, to turn from their vain rebellion and be blessed and happy by putting their trust in Christ. There is but one hope for them, Submission to God's King. There is no refuge from Him. There is only refuge in Him, as Derek Kidner wrote. And so the final section, the last three verses, is our urgent plea. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry. And you perish in the way when His wrath is kindled but a little. Happy are all those who put their trust in Him. Well, here is the part that we are given to play, inviting the nations to a blessed happiness. We urge them and their rulers to bow before God's Christ. Kiss the son. Um, when Samuel anointed Saul as king, he kissed him as a sign of his allegiance and homage. Worship the Lord. Serve him, it says. Happy, eternally happy 
are all who have taken refuge in Christ. There is this tension, this heavy tension in the psalm that that leads it right to the end. Uh, What's going to happen? And we find ourselves in that same tension, right? We already, the first fruits of Christ's dominions and his nations and and, uh, um, citizens from among the peoples of the earth, we are are caught in this uh, dynamic, this this tension between the nations and, and Christ. But our role is to call people to an eternal happy blessedness, warning them of the terrible consequences that will result if they refuse it. It's only when we've understood such a dreadful judgment of perishing, it says here, and from what, that which we've been delivered, that we can then rejoice with trembling, as it says. It's only when we've felt the guilt of our rebellion against God that we may kiss the Son rejoicing in Him. There is no other way for happiness for which we are made, wrote Lewis. If you want to get warm, you have to stand near the fire. If you want to get wet, you have to get in the water. And if you want joy, you must get close to or into the thing that has it. And this is not a sort of prize that God could, if he chose, hand out to anyone. It's a great fountain of energy and beauty spurting up at the very center of reality. And when you are close to it, the spray will wet you. But if not, you will remain dry. How happy is the one who takes refuge in Jesus. How happy are we, delivered from the wicked nations, perishing in their blindness. How happy, even on our worst day, that we have all this and Jesus too. You know, before he was converted, John Wesley was deeply impressed by a a conversation he had at his college, uh, at the, the, the doorman, the porter that worked there. Wesley discovered that the man had only one coat and when he spoke to him, he, he hadn't eaten that day because he was so poor. He didn't have any money for food. But, but this man was still overflowing with joy in God. And Wesley said, you thank God when you have nothing to wear, nothing to eat, no bed even to lie on? Well, what else do you thank him for? The doorman replied, I thank him that he has given me my life and being and a heart to love him and a desire to serve him. Now, that is the way to true happiness. The nations are raging. We are caught in that rage, and yet we are called to happiness. Happy, happy is the one who puts their trust in God the Son. In conclusion, this psalm is quoted and referenced, as I mentioned, many times in the New Testament. We came across it a few weeks ago at the end of Revelation 2, if you were here. I don't know if you remember, but In that Revelation 2, the Lord Jesus himself quotes it and applies that promise that has already been fulfilled in him as an offer then to be fulfilled also in us. That there in Revelation 2, Christ promises us that if we too are faithful unto death, he who overcomes, says Jesus, and keeps my works unto the end, To him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces, also have received. To the end, we will reign with him in glory. And then, very, very happy. How happy eternally we will be as we join our voices in the heavenly chorus and sing of the fulfillment, the kingdoms of this world, are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And he 
shall reign forever and ever. Happy are all those who have trusted in God's Son. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, how again we need the happiness, we find the unhappiness of the nations and rulers and their raging, especially their raging against you, and how the reproaches of you have fallen on us as well. We mourn our Father that uh, as ambassadors in such a hostile place, in a hostile land, that more do not receive such an offer, such a gracious offer of eternal joy and blessed happiness in the Lord Jesus. Oh, may many put their trust in him. May we be given grace to be bold and courageous ambassadors and fearless for the King of Kings. May we who have kissed the Son likewise show forth in ourselves the joy of all those who know you and have put their trust in you. We pray again as we come to this table of our Lord Jesus that truly in communion with him, having a foretaste of that eternal kingdom and the joy of a heavenly banquet, that we would know the blessedness of those who have taken refuge in Jesus. In him we have fled. May now he be our present Savior, near at hand, as we take bread, as we receive 